Hello and welcome to episode 35 of the Bike Karma Bicycle Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Brown. This show is for anybody who ever loved a bicycle or still does. We have stories from around the world and amazingly and thankfully have been downloaded in all 50 states and over 50 countries. So today we're going to hear some stories from William Bevington who wrote the book Japanese Steel, all about Japanese road bikes from their heyday. We're also going to hear about touring through the desert and finding a town that you didn't know was there from a man called Seven. Yeah, I like the number. All the stories on our show are no drop, which means we don't leave anybody behind and they're easy to keep up. So if you ever smiled while you were on a bicycle, this show is for you. And I know you have a lot of other podcasts to listen to, so I really appreciate you coming along for the ride with me on this one. Let's roll out. Each year, one new cycling book rises to the top as the gift to give for the holidays and to get for the holidays if you are a bicycle-loving person. Some years, it stays on the shelf, and other years, it turns into one of your favorites. This year was a good one. It was the book Japanese Steel by William Bevington with photographer Scott Ryder. This book about classic bicycle designs from Japan reminded me of a book from my childhood. I used to love ships when I was a kid and we would walk into a stationery store and they had a small book section and there was a book there on warships and it was a gigantic huge picture book that was like the size of my torso. And one day after going several times, my grandmother I think bought it for me. And I remember spending dozens of hours just staring at different places in the book, looking at the beauty of the ships. I didn't know the context of war. I just understood that these were beautifully engineered machines. But the book itself was laid out in this way where you could open up to any section and just dig in. And that's what this book is like. So whether you love them already or never heard of them, here's your introduction to Japanese Steel. when my father made me aware of steel and steel tubing and how tubing could be drawn or could be seamed. And that led me to an interest in the framework of a bicycle itself. And that led me to different manufacturers and one of those was Fuji. That began my love of both these bicycles and the field of design as well. Greetings, my name is William Bevington. I'm calling in from New York. I'm the author of the recently released Japanese Steel, Classic Bicycle Design from Japan. It's sort of a compendium of storytelling and facts about the Japanese bicycle exports and incredible Japanese bikes. In the book, there are a couple drifts into autobiography, and certainly in the Fuji section, that does happen because that's really where I began. I was a uh, paper boy when I was 12, 13, 14, and I remember sort of visiting the shop, and that did change my life. In 1971, I was a paper boy and had a route of about 60 customers. I was pretty happy. I would deliver my papers and go cycling whenever I could. 
we used to sometimes even deliver the papers strung over our shoulders on the little stingrays, you know, so we would ride stingrays about town. We even had little demolition derbies with the stingrays, which I hate to admit now, but that was part of the fun back then. I then we used to ride to some of the shops around northern New Jersey, and one of them was, I think, Midfield Park Cycle, and there I purchased a Parasport little black and white bicycle manufactured in France. And it was a revelation for me. Suddenly, I felt I was just flying, you know, sort of plodding along on my stingray. The efficiency of that really shocked me. And then was a time when we began to think then of 10 and 15 and 20 mile rides out of suburban areas. When I got that first 10-speed, I was amazed, you know, because it just transports a person. You just fly, and I couldn't believe the efficiency, the places I could go. And I tried to do some touring rides as far as 50, even as a pretty young teenager. And I remember one day I was with the bicycle out on the driveway. My father came out and he looked at it very approvingly. And then he ran his two fingers under the top tube. And he goes, oh, it's steam tubing, it's nice, you know. And he began to discuss that, and I I said, is that good? He goes, well, and he began to describe how steel tubes were made. So he talked about whether they could be drawn or seamed and produced that way. He even mentioned something about butt tubing, which I didn't comprehend at the time. But then I asked him, I said, who makes the best steel? He said, well, we do. U.S. makes, you know, great steel. But he goes, uh... Germany has some good steel making, and England is famous for it. He said, but the Japanese also make great steel today because they have all new factories. You know, after the war, the factories were built, and they have very high-quality processing. Apparently, the, the raw material of the steel takes more processing than from other parts of the world, and so that's, there's a lot of development there. So he discussed that a little bit with me, and then that intrigued me to sort of look at not just a bicycle, but where it came from. You know, so I looked at the Raleigh's. The Raleigh Professional, of course, was a holy grail bike with 531. And, of course, all the Italian bikes then were pretty much what you thought about in terms of the Tour de France and things. So they were very, very high quality. But I was intrigued by this idea of Japanese steel. So I found in the Yellow Pages that a shop called Fuji Cycle Center was in Rochelle Park. It had just opened, I think. And it was actually the first single-purpose dealer uh, of Fuji's in the country. And it was the year that Fuji branded their own brands and came to America. So I, uh, I cycled there. And I was fascinated by then the Fuji newest, the silver and orange livery. Beautiful bike. So this basically occurred in 1971-72. That's when Fuji came over. Their first newest was shown in the Hilton Hotel in 71. And I arrived at the shop just after he had opened it. And Ken Maria came and spoke to me about it a little bit. And then almost every single day, I would cycle over there. As soon as I finished delivering the newspapers, get on my Paris Sport and ride over. That's kind of where you got a job in a cycle shop back then, just hung around. <laughs> so every day you go and hang around until finally someone says, fix this bike or go talk to that person. I was incredibly shy, so I wasn't going to be able to talk to any person. But as it turned out, one day, 
two customers walked in. It was winter, and, and two sets of customers walked in. And Ken motioned to me and said, help them. I was kind of frozen. I was in shock. It was a, a, a father and his daughter. I began to speak about the bikes kind of haltingly. Luckily, she asked a couple questions, and that sort of helped me get out of my own mind and begin to talk about the bicycles themselves. And when the first couple left, I assumed Ken would take over, but he didn't. He just walked off to the office and left me in this situation. I think I was probably about 45 minutes or an hour, and they bought a Fuji Finest. Not the newest, but the Fuji Finest, which was a very expensive bicycle for the time. A great buy in terms of its quality, but not usually someone's first bike. He was amazed I was able to sell it, actually. Didn't show it, but I think was. So time passed. I worked there for many years. And the story I tell in the book was really about developing this little logo, uh, the Fuji 3 dot logo, which Fuji sometimes still uses in their collateral and such. I remember at that time wanting to sort of cycle to every bike shop within 100 miles of Fuji, and I set that up as a goal. I never got to most of them, but I did get to one in Nyack, New York, that had the Bianchis, and I remember looking at that celeste green, but more so looking at that beautiful black block type modernistic drawing of Bianchi and being totally captivated by it, fascinated by it. I carried a little day planner in my back pocket, which my father sort of recommended one does. And I made a little sketch of that. And then I sort of had the courage about a week later, I said to Ken Maria, uh, Ken-san, um, I think we could have a better logo for our water bottle and, <laughs> and our T-shirt. And he said, you know, you don't make that type of complaint. You just show better suggestions. So I thought, ah, oh, that's very interesting. You know, he said in Japan, you know, that would be the approach to trying to suggest an improvement. So I thought, okay. So I cycled home that night and I stopped at a bookshop called Brentano's, long out of business. And I said to the individual there, do you have any books on drawing locos? And he said, well, I don't think so, but we have these books on design over here with the art section. And there was a book there called Graphic Designers USA. It was published by Spectrum Books. I was amazed. You know, I opened this book up, and there was a gentleman named Rudy DeHarrick, and he did these beautiful logos, uh, also sort of drawn, modernistic. And I discovered two things that day. I discovered, one, this was actually a profession, which shocked me. And then I began to understand something about typography. I've taught typography now uh, for 30 years, <laughs> so uh, it really got into my blood, I think, that moment, that day. I was always interested before in lettering and things like that, but somehow the thought that it was a profession sort of amazed me. So I worked on this logo. I was 14 or 15. I think I did it when I was 14, and then I think 15 is when they actually used it. I worked on this logo with ink and pens and... No computers then for that purpose. And Ken took it, looked at it, said nothing. And then about, I don't know, a month later, he came back and said, oh, we're going to use the logo. And they gave me a check for $500, which from that I was able to then get my Fuji newest. Terrific. And uh, I must say, the most money I had ever seen in my life.
that was my history that then also brought me to design. So I applied to Cooper Union, I think, you know, and it was one of the schools I applied to. That was it. So it set me on a course of bicycles and design. And I think the book, I tried to sort of a thank you for that in some ways. And I went and you know did a lot of research then on that whole sort of trend from 1964 forward and the incredible change that Japan had to overcome from being regarded as producing absolutely junky stuff to the reputation they have developed rather quickly and have today for quality. And the two things I think that contributed most to that was the push for their miniature radios, the transistor radio, and the bicycle. One of the reasons I'm really fascinated by these bicycles is that you still find them on the streets of New York. 40-year-old bikes are now coming on 50 years for some of them. So it's an amazing testament to quality. And really one of the reasons, one of several, but one of the reasons why the industry really began to fade in the 90s is those products were completely non-obsolescent. They were, you know, you had one and it would last you a lifetime. So it's a really fascinating story, I think, about quality and efficiency that I tried to weave the book as well. So I call the classic age of these Japanese bikes. I sort of started in 1964, specifically started in 1964, when the Tokyo Olympics occurred. You know, the Tokyo Olympics, you had the unveiling of the Shinkansen, which was amazing, their bullet train. So for the Olympics, they unveiled, the Japanese unveiled the bullet train, which was a real, truly a technical marvel. And another happy little marvel was made a Suntour with the slant parallelogram design, a very critical patent that really changed the nature of derailleurs on bicycles. So those three things are important little milestones in this process. But the 10-speed bicycle itself is a pretty important milestone because most gearing was internal. The British, for one, were very, very adamant about chain always running true and not being deflected. And as chains were able to be designed with more deflection, that permitted external gearing and multi-speed hubs. But in the early 60s in America, the bicycle was pretty much considered a children's toy, and we were truly an invincible car culture, right? It was really when the bicycle became uh, a tool that was regarded for sport and health and outdoor activity that the boom really began in America. So, of course, you had intense bicycle use in the East, but not so much in America. And, of course, you had it in Europe as well. So when the bicycle boom began, it was really a shift from the child's bike to the adult bike. And the 10-speed was the, the absolute epitome of that. You know, it really was something that, changed the whole focus of what a bicycle was in this country. There was a point when bicycles outsold cars in this country. Of course, that was also true in 1890, when there were any cars. (laughs) So one of the interesting aspects about the different Japanese manufacturers is how they all come into bicycle making or bicycle selling. Each one has a different sort of path, like Panasonic is is different than the Bridgestone path. They all have different ways. Fuji is particularly interesting because it goes quite far back and begins really as a store. Hence the name, again, Nishibi, uh, meaning, uh, Nishibi meaning Japan and America. Nishibi Shoten, Japan and America store, 
was where these original American-built bicycles uh, were sold. But very, very quickly, by the 1900s or so, by the 1905 or so, Fuji is beginning to shift, and they begin to work with Rudge, the British manufacturer. And they were basically just a retailer, an exclusive retailer of that British mark. Intriguingly, the home builders, of which there were many beginning to spring up, they made less money really trying to put together a bicycle than these salesmen did of just bringing in bikes. And generally, the, the British quality was regarded as a better bicycle at that time. So that sort of began this relationship with Fuji. But what happened is when uh, in World War One, when the war broke out, some of the shipments apparently were sunk. So Fuji had no stock, right? And what they then did was begin to copy these bikes quite faithfully. And then there was no turning back. They even uh, were helping, the, the British were originally helping to build some of the facilities there. But that actually uh, kind of fell through because of the war efforts at home. Japanese were really left on their own at that point, and then that's when the industry became really stronger and totally self-sufficient and self-supplied. When one looks at bicycles, it is interesting that you really do need a pretty good and wide manufacturing base. Very, very few bicycle manufacturers could make everything. I mean, they're not going to make tires and leather seats and things. So you really do need a, a nice range of suppliers. And that actually becomes very exciting later on after the war when Japan is trying to come back from this reputation of very poor quality materials. They really did dictate, the government began to dictate who made what and they began to figure out a sort of a logic for the manufacturers so they didn't have strong, strong internal competition at the time. That goes away pretty quickly. The manufacturers do begin to compete with each other pretty strongly by the uh, by the 80s. But in the late 60s and the 70s, it really was a very integrated business and manufacturing plan. It's really about sharing this stuff, and, and that's what I tried to do. And as the iterations of the book advanced, and I tried to really have a structure where the captions were kind of geeky and could appeal to people who liked the technical side. But I tried to do each of the chapters with a different kind of storytelling and with different types of facts that I interwove into the book itself. Like, you know, for the Centurion, I used that as a place to really talk about bicycle history because the Centurion itself is quite fascinating of how it it came on the scene, how it was actually rejected by Raleigh because they didn't want to have a Japanese bike that was basically ordered by a separate division, and then how that comes into its own, you know. So there's a lot of storytelling and the facts all overlaid. Yeah, that's what I like I like about it. I think if it was any more technical, it would not be as good. Um, when, when you talk about, like, uh, the Muppet Show, and I know I'm going crazy here. The Muppet Show was successful because there were jokes that kids laughed at that parents laughed at for different reasons. So there were like these multi-level jokes. I think that a successful bicycle book, it's got to appeal to the nerds, like the uber nerds, like the people who know like this serial number and that serial number and all that stuff. But it's also got to be a good story. So if I skip through the pages and I see that there's a, I forget which company it was, but the, the head, the patriarch of the company literally just says one day, no more anything but bicycles. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But yeah, the reaction, right. 
So I thought that that was a great story, you know. Yeah, that's no more the Yada story. Yeah, yep. that's story. the. Uh, yep. that's I the, love that. Yeah, beating uh, the swords into plowshares, right? So, yeah, the Miata. Miata is actually one of the great, great brands. I mean, amazing brand. And uh, it's funny, but yes, there are, each one has a different kind of storytelling. And each one I kind of bury different type of facts in. So it definitely runs as a, I don't want to say a rambling narrative. I would just say it's storytelling where you're allowed to have some nice cul-de-sacs and some nice offshoots. And I, and I just try to do that. You know, originally I thought, I'll just do this collection of bikes, you know. But it never, it didn't work that way. What happened was the bicycles had their own kind of DNA and their own kind of spirit behind them. So by the time, really, we were getting around to the photography, I think there's only three of my bicycles in the whole book. I think by that time, it really made much more sense to follow the spirit of the different brands. And the other thing I was very, very desirous of doing was not just putting in super rare bikes or super expensive bikes. You know, first of all, the, the Japanese bikes are, for the most part, a very, very good buy. They're still a bargain for the type of quality you get. But there are, you know, maybe 10 bikes in there that there are one or two or 10 or 15 of. But then I really also tried to have some very available stuff in there, too. So because my idea is really about the sustainability of these things. The fact that, you know, the streets of New York have 40 and now nearly 50-year-old bicycles chained to poles. I mean, people are riding 50 and 40-year-old bikes and they're still completely viable. And I think that is an amazing aspect of, of the industry. What Japan really created was inexpensive quality or affordable quality. It, that didn't really exist so much in the 50s and 60s. It was almost a sliding scale. You know, you get what you pay for. And they kind of began to change that formula where you get much more than you thought you'd get for this much, you know. I think you could say it was not really exploiting people then at all. I mean, the spirit in these companies was amazing. Yes, you know, it's factory work, but really the spirit was amazing. That's the story of Nishiki tells you that, you know, because Cohen got a little bit of a pushback on the American Eagle brand, right? So people said, wait, that's a little disingenuous, you know, calling a Japanese-built bike American Eagle. And Cohen took that to heart, and he, instead of, you know, going to sort of, you know, family or himself or to even an agency in the U.S., he asked the factory workers to name the bike. And that's, you know, would that happen today? Like, never. <laughs> what does Nishiki mean? What was the meaning behind Nishiki? It's, it's a little bit of a complicated meaning, but basically it refers to a high level of craftsmanship with intricacy and color. So all these things kind of tie into that idea. Nishiki generally sort of referred to either the, the threads used like in kimonos or the multicolor printing of Yukio printing. And it was always sort of a craftsmanship term more than, uh, than a manufacturing term. So it's an interesting idea that the factory workers wanted to apply that word. But it, it sort of means like very high quality craftsmanship and it also involves this idea of five color thread so that's why later the Nishiki logo actually had five bands of color running to it also referring more directly to that term
think there's definitely a lot of pride, and there's, there's a story of the underdog here, too. Uh, very much, you know. Yeah, that was very much the case. But, I mean, there, there are many reasons why the bike craze faded and many of these companies retreated or were sold or moved to Taiwan. Many of them, that's what happened. But one of the reasons I feel, besides from the oil price shocks, which really knocked the price advantage, and then the um, industry moving to Taiwan, which began to erode the quality advantage. The other point was these bikes last forever. People purchase the bikes and, you know, enthusiasts might get another one. But generally, no, generally one bike was enough, you know, for your life. So essentially the market just got saturated as well. Now the bicycle industry is quite different, right? They sort of have the idea that every three or four years your bicycle is kind of obsolete. But that was not the case for 20 or 25 straight years. Miata, I have a Miata 310, and I know oh, nice. nothing uh, special, but to me it's very special. I think it, when I ride that, I think it's the most undervalued product. It is amazing for the price that you can buy them at. I got one for $19, and I put thousands <laughs> of miles on it. $19 at a Goodwill. I just love the heck out of that bike. Miata deserves deserves a special kind of accolade because they made their own tubing. It's hard to know precisely now every aspect of that, but for the most part, it's the only manufacturer that really did that. I mean, Bridgestone did it for their cheaper bikes and things like that. But in the back of the book, we actually took quite a bit of time to uh, redraw and reconfigure all the different labels of the Japanese tube manufacturers. You know, back then there was Day to Day, which was an amazing, amazing product, but it did not last too long on the market. And and then, of course, Tange and Ishiwata. And then today is Keisai, and that's that's the one now. But that really, they came out of uh, Ishiwata, and Tange went to Taiwan. But the other one is Miata's tubing, and the really fascinating thing there is that because Isuke Miata was a gun maker, the tubing was spiraled, right? It had the spiral on the inside because rifle is technically the term, right? So rifling allows the bullet to have a much finer accuracy and trajectory and because it puts the spin into the bullet as it leaves the barrel. This rifling was done to all of Miata's tubes from from 1890 on. And it's a fascinating aspect. They really took so much pride in their frame itself. So Miata was, in some ways, you know, the most complete of the bicycle manufacturers because they made their own tubes as well. But they are, they're amazing bicycles and they are definitely, I don't want to use the word underpriced because uh, it's not the right term really, but they are some of the most affordable machines out there for the purpose of, again, especially for urban cycles, urban cycling, you know, it's fantastic, fantastic machines. There's some other fascinating stories, too, because some of the top bicycles made in Japan, like some of the Fujis, were made by Shiriba, which is one of the finest builders. I think the most award-winning builder of Japan, still around today, and with many decades of history. And there are some, like the Opus 3, which is basically a Sharibam. <laughs> and, you know, th- these bikes go for several hundred dollars on eBay today, and they are $1,000 bicycles in t- terms of their quality. So it's kind of fun seeking down and finding these things. And also another advantage was because so many bikes were made, so many parts were made, 
not only can you find virtually all the original replacement parts, the hardest thing is probably saddles, but you can find all the original replacement parts, but even if you can't, everything is interchangeable. There's just nothing like that in the manufacturing world today. I mean, all these interchangeable parts, you could basically go forever. You'll never run out of components or pieces to keep these things completely viable for the road. There was no planned obsolescence. There was no, well, after a while, there was some proprietary bumps in the road. but There are. I mean, there many, everyone was trying to get proprietary edges. That was very important. The, the, there were so many patents issued. And I don't know if you know this story, but I think one of the most maybe not so well known, but I think famous ones is that when when Shimano released their SIS equipment, you know, their, their indexing, they really did have to have that parallelogram design. And when they released the, the product, they had it sort of under wraps, under like a black cloth until Suntour's patent ran out. And then they just pulled the claws and the patent was over and it could be used for their next line. You know, Shimano has become an incredible company. I mean, the quality of the product and their manufacturing model is amazing. I mean, it's the largest bicycle parts manufacturer in the world, of course. Also, the, you know, the dedication they have to the engineering and the quality of these components is uncanny. Really fabulous story. Shimano, you know, could be five books in itself. <laughs> well, thank you very much for sharing your time and for making a great book. Where would people want to go to find out more? Well, I mean, it's so easy to get the book. If, yeah, if you just search Japanese Steel in Bevington, you'll find it. <laughs> you know, Amazon is one of the you know lower-priced ones. I think it's great if you can get it in a bookstore, you know, help out. You're just like local bike shop, local bookstore. Does that writer, the photographer, love bikes as much as you? Absolutely, yes. And he has several great Instagram sites. Okay. And is there a website you would send people to? I don't have a website specifically for the book. So under Instagram, Classic Japanese Bicycles, I regularly post some of the images and some minor or unknown facts where I can. So, yeah, Classic Japanese Bicycles is pretty much the best way to find some of these images and communicate with me. So that's my source. I super appreciate the passion and your energy for this. Thank you so right. much. Bye. Bye-bye now. The overall goal of the Bike Karma Bicycle Podcast is to bring bicycle-loving people from around the world together to share stories and make connections. These stories can be any type of story about bicycles. They could be huge stories. They could be small stories. Don't be intimidated just because somebody found a body and some celebrities have been on. It's any cool story about bicycles that could get onto the show. So if you have a cool story, contact me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. Bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. I'd like to take this time mid-roll to thank all the people who have followed on Podbean. It's free and it doesn't cost anything. It's just one of the many places that you can listen to Bike Karma on. So, quasdiz. Thanks a lot for following. pturner66pt. It seems like this name comes up a couple times, but thank you again. Logzek. 9 Demon Dunk Kukviz Gukvek Okay Mars Dars 8 Suhet B 
Tarvzev, Nathan J. Horner, Najern, Jahani, Biupst, Nifra, Hezmigzi, Bikes, Burpees, and Backhands. That one's easy. Pop Pop 531, Commerce Kevin, PBG 42D96A, Loveland Cycles. I guess I'd rather say a couple of these twice than miss out on saying them. So thanks to all you guys for following on Podbeam. Thanks also to all the people who've left ratings and reviews on Apple iTunes and Apple Podcasts. That really helps, although I can't always see your names, so I can't thank you, but thank you anyway. I'd also like to thank Capovelo. It's C-A-P-O-V-E-L-O dot com. They have the most amazing amount of cycling articles in one place that you've ever seen, so go check them out. And big thanks to all the people from Pennsylvania and Ohio who've been talking to me lately. Some have been giving stories. You're going to hear from those two states a lot in the next couple episodes. So thanks a lot. The reason I do one show a month is because they take over 20 hours to produce each one. Right now I have about five months worth of raw material waiting to be edited and turned into stories for you. So all those people waiting in the queue for their stories to air, thank you very much for being patient. And thank you for sharing your stories. They're going to be awesome when I get done with them. Promise. And finally, if you're a sponsor and you like what you hear on the show, you've got a box full of product and a little bit of cash to help me pay for the show, I'm open to that. So if you want to talk about just how reasonably you could sponsor this show or at least help support it, please hit me up at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. And now back to the show. When you first start out from the Californian side of the Mojave, it's actually very rural and full of farms. When we got to our camping spot on the Salton Sea, there was actually a watermelon farm. So there was not only a group of field hands uh, collecting watermelon, but there was also watermelon police. There was a guy in the little golf cart kind of policing the field and making sure you didn't steal watermelons. And I think he was there the whole night. go northeast from the town of Mecca and climb over a very shallow mountain and go through a canyon. So once we got into that mountain, there were no longer any farms. And once we got through that dry, rocky canyon to the other side of I-10 is going into the Mojave, it basically turned into what you would expect to see in Arizona. Mountainous ranges and very flat landscapes with shrubbery as far as I can see. The reason for that is the water sources. Right, so you're not going to be able to get water from anywhere. Hello, I'm Seven Shurigan from San Francisco. Well, I just recently went on a big tour from San Francisco to Arizona, and that was an amazing experience. Probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. Touring for a month for a thousand miles. Well, I think the uh, ride through the Mojave was quite an interesting adventure because we went in there and that's uh, just a bit over 100 miles between the last set of towns in California around the Salton Sea and the Arizona border, where on the other side in Arizona, there's a town called Quartzsite. But really between that part of California 
on the Salton Sea and Quartzsite. It's uh, over 100 miles of nothing. There's nothing there. We're doing this in May, so it's starting to get hot. We got lucky because when we hit the Salton Sea, we had uh, some rainstorm that cooled things down, but the temperature was kind of climbing. So we knew that we were going to go in there with uh, 40-pound bikes loaded with 60 pounds of gear, and we're going to have to camp somewhere in the middle of the desert. So we were extremely worried, were we going to have enough water? Were we going to have shade? Were we going to be able to get help if we were in some kind of emergency? What happens if our bikes break down and our bikes break down and we can't fix them? Like, are we able to hitchhike with somebody? If we have something like a snake bike happen and we don't have cell reception, what do we do in that case? So we had all those things on our mind and we kind of woke up really early, saw a beautiful night sky because out at the Salton Sea there's not a lot of light pollution out there, so you get these beautiful views of the Milky Way. Anyway, we woke up, we loaded up our supplies, packed our tents, rolled up to a local supermarket that we had learned opens really early, loaded up on water, so we bought probably one of those giant, like, Costco-sized crates of water bottles and distributed it between all of our paneers and then rolled off. And it was getting hot because it was May, and we rode all day. And when we got to the center of the Mojave and we were looking for a place to camp, we said, okay, so we got to go off the highway through some barbed wire and kind of sleep in some bushes somewhere and worry about snakes and all that. And I see this little blue dot on the map. So I pinch and zoom into this, and it looks like a lake. So it looks like right in the middle of the Mojave, there's some kind of lake, and it looked like there are some streets around it, and it looked like it said, uh, you know, there's a fire station, a library, a town hall, and some other stuff, and it doesn't look like it's that far off of I-10. So my co-pilot and I decide, hmm, Let's roll over there and check it out. I mean, if it's going to be a bunch of abandoned buildings like we've seen through the Mojave, we can just camp in the ruins of one or something. And now it'll already be better than camping in little bushes because you want to be kind of as far away from any place the snake could hide on, like, even ground as you can. So we roll off the highway and immediately roll into a ghost town that's dead. There was a postal office there, and there was, I think, an AT&T, like, utility way station. So it's just some, like, walled-in place which, with a bunch of parked vehicles. And we go past that, and we go down the road a ways. We roll into a tropical paradise. So there's green grass, there's lawns, there's sprinklers going everywhere. Man, what is this? What is this place? When we get in there, it turns out to be some kind of principality where it's, it's a city but it's run by a corporation that owns a golf course. And the owners of the golf course are also kind of these well-wishing proprietors of the, of the city, so they're also like leading the city community. Community of somewhere, I can't remember exactly, like 100 to 400 people. Their main gossip is around how many rattlesnakes did you see today? And uh, they were very welcoming and accommodating. It turns out the place is called Lake Tamarisk, a resort, 
That's both the name of the business and the name of the town. There is a small lake there, and it's a man-made lake. There's a golf course around there, and there's nobody at the golf course. And the reason for that is because when you have the kind of heat that you have in Arizona and in the Mojave on the border with Arizona, most of the population of those towns just leaves for the summer. But during the winter, all throughout Arizona and that part of California, retirees and Canadians, oddly enough Canadians, come down and enjoy their holiday. So this entire town, community, lake resort, Oasis existed as a beneficiary of uh, Canadian tourism. And when we were there, it was completely empty. So you had all the green lawns and all the running water and the lake and everything, but there was absolutely nobody there except for the proprietors and the few locals. And those locals, they had uh, the fire station, but like if they wanted to get some amenities like groceries, they had to go down a ways, practically like 50, 60 miles to the nearby town of Portsite in Arizona just to get groceries or something like that. So, so this is about halfway through the Mojave Desert? Yeah, exactly. So if anyone goes down the, I believe it was the I-10 to the Arizona border, I highly recommend you stop there. You won't find it unless you know to look for it, but it's really very, very close to the highway. In fact, when you're in there at night, you can see the lights of the cars on the highway, but when you're on the highway, you can't really see the town. What is more magical about it is the local animals and fauna don't really know that there's a town or understand that or respect it, right? So the desert, while it looks empty during the day when you're biking past it on your touring bicycle, is actually full of life and moving critters. So when I was walking to the restroom at this uh, place, I had a spider crawl past me uh, just crossing my path that was the size of my hand, and it was uh, like yellow and translucent. This massive thing, but like they don't know they're going through a golf course. They're like, you know, they were going through a desert and then they are crawling over some grass and then they're crawling through the desert again. Similarly, I was talking to the locals about that and had them share some stories with me and they were saying, you know, like mountain lions come down regularly because it's one of the biggest sources of water. So they would be going between the houses in this little town and some mountain lion would be <laughs> crossing the street to go drink at this uh, uh, this little man-made lake. And I think the guy said, yeah, I saw the lion, the lion saw me, and I said, nope, and went back home and the lion just continued to go to drink and enjoy himself. And I think one lesson we learned touring through the desert was to behave like the local snakes and wake up early, bike, and then when it would get hot around noon, take a break in the shade, drink some water, and then resume around 4 or 5 p.m. when it started to cool down again, instead of riding through that really hot period. My name is Seven, and I'm the writer of the Sprocket blog on Instagram. I'm also the founder of the Sprocket app on iOS and Android. It's an app for buying and selling bikes and looking at bike information. Yeah, everybody asks about my name. It's easy to remember 
hard to forget or misspell. And that's the way I like it. Came up with it actually at Burning Man. At Burning Man, when you go, someone has to give you a fly name. You don't get to pick it. And my, the name I went by at that point was Stefan. So I just asked for a coffee and they misheard me and wrote seven on the coffee cup. And I thought that was the most cool thing because not only did they give me a ply name, but seven's always been a special number in my life and a lucky number. And now I had to live with this idea of what if I changed my name to seven, but never had the guts to do it. So I thought about it and I test piloted it for about a year and I still liked it after I heard all the jokes. And so I went to the San Jose City Hall got the paperwork and changed it. It didn't cost that much. It was fairly straightforward. And in fact, the paperwork they gave me as an example in Santa Clara County literally said, if you were to change your name to seven or some such, you would do this, this, and this other thing. So I said, ah, it's gonna be easy. So I changed my name in 2017, another happy coincidence. And uh, it's always been a good topic of conversation. It's always been a good way to have a first impression with people. And uh, I enjoy telling the story of how I got my name. Thank you for asking. Good, good. I was, I was kind of worried that I might offend you or something like that. So I'm glad, I'm glad you reacted that way instead. When I had graduated college, I had gotten into the software industry designing mobile applications. And I found myself working for a company building apps for entertainment. And I felt like there was a misalignment in my life in terms of the kind of causes I was interested in in the world and the kind of work I was doing at the time. And so I started thinking, wouldn't it be great if the work that I do day to day could be more closely aligned with the vision I had for helping improve people's lives in the world. And I ended up brainstorming different ways that I could do this. And eventually I had so many people coming up to me to ask me for a nice vintage $200 steel road bike that they could use as a commuter that I thought, huh, actually this is telling me there's a lot of demand for somebody to create a platform for buying and selling used bikes. And I looked at the current apps and I realized that they're actually not that good. And the reason is because they're they're not specialized. You know, they're trying to figure out if you want to buy a TV or a couch or a car or a bike. So there was really a need for something for gearheads like us that just focused on buying and selling bikes and also focus on the technical aspects and kind of um, communicate between the two worlds in an entirely new way. Like you mentioned, the application is kind of like an IMDB for bikes in that it provides technical information and specifications. And the application is also a marketplace where people can use Sprocket to connect with local community members and buy and sell bikes. Seven, thank you very much. Lots of different stories today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Where can people go to find out more? Yeah, you can find my Instagram blog at Sprocket Blog on Instagram. I'm also blogging on Facebook and Tumblr and Twitter. In terms of the app, go to the Sprocket app on Android and on iOS and just search Sprocket. Scroll down until you see a green symbol with a white bicycle gear, and that's me. And if you want to learn more, I own sprocket.bike. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Okay, take care. Bye.
Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Bike Karma Bicycle Podcast. I'd like to thank Keller Glass and the band Mob Jack for our opening and closing theme music. All the other music is royalty-free music or music from the royalty-free, no attribution required section from YouTube. So thank you to all the musicians who made that extra music as well. I'd like to thank our guests, William and Seven, for sharing their stories on the show. Yes, the new free stickers are very popular, but there are still some left. So all you got to do is send me your address and I will send you some for free until they run out or I run out of stamps. If you have any ideas or comments, the email is bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. You find me on all different social media, Instagram, Facebook, Tumblr, and even good old Google+. If you like the show, the best thing you can do to help is to share and leave positive reviews out there. I know the landscape's changing, but Apple and Apple Podcast is still one of the big places to leave reviews to help a show out. This may be the last show before the North American Handmade Bicycle Show, which this year is going to be out west. I'm not going to be able to make it this year, but you should go check it out. It's called NABS for short, the North American Handmade Bicycle Show. Check them out. I'm definitely going to make it next year. And apart from the music, the Bike Karma Bicycle Podcast is the intellectual property of Thomas Brown. All rights, including copyright, trademark, and that cute cat picture, all those rights are reserved and asserted. If this is your first episode, check out our back catalog. You can see just how much I've improved at editing and producing since the first episode. Well, it's winter through most of the country, and a lot of you put your bikes away for the winter. And as it starts to get warmer, or if we get a warm day, you're going to want to do your ABC quick check. Here to tell you about that is Taryn. When you take out your bike, do a quick check. A, air, B, brakes, C, chain line. Quick is for a quick release, is to make sure your wheels don't fall off. And a quick overall check before you go down a hill. All right. Thanks, Taryn, for keeping everybody safe out there. Until next time. Said, until next time. Peace, Leo. What? Keep it wheel.